Well, as always, church, it is good to be with you. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the preaching pastors and elders here at the Austin Stone. We're glad that you're here. If you have a Bible, go and open up to Exodus 32. To Exodus 32. Be there in just a little bit. If you don't have the scriptures, don't worry about it. It'll be on the screen behind me throughout the entire sermon. So we're continuing on in our sermon series, working through the book of Exodus. We've been there for about a year now, and we're continuing through it. And this week, this week we find ourselves at another famous story in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is filled with all these famous stories that we're, most of us, whether you grew up in church or not, you can be uh, familiar with. And today we come to a famous story where Israel's going to build a golden calf and worship it. Now, it's a well-known story, but just because it's well-known doesn't mean we understand the point of that story. So let me tell you from, from the very get-go what the point of the text is this morning. Here, here's the thing to walk out in your brain. Here's what I, I want you to see from the scriptures is that your sin, my sin, it makes God rightfully angry. Our sin makes God rightfully angry, but his intercessor prompts his unmerited mercy. I want you to see this this morning. That our sin makes him angry, but his intercessor prompts his unmerited mercy. So when you read the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus does not tell us every single thing that happened to Israel at this point in their history. It's not a journal entry of every day, here's what's happening. No, the book of Exodus is Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, him recording certain events along the way that he wants us to know. It's God giving us, here are the things that I want my people for all time to know about from this story. And so the reason Moses picks this story today of the golden calf and the worship that, that, that Israel had towards it, the reason he picks this story is because he wants to show us, here's how God responds to your sin. Here's how God responds to your sin. He wants us to know that this is the first time Israel experienced God's anger towards his word being disobeyed by the people that he saved. See, up, up to this point in the book of Exodus, God has taught us many th different things. Many different things, his power, his might, his ability to save. But the concept of sin has not been explicit so far in the book of Exodus. There's been hints here and there. But in the coming chapters of the book of Exodus, God's going to deal with the topic of our sin and how he experiences it explicitly. And so when I read this text, it's going to be abundantly clear that God gets angry at our sin. Now hear me. This is a truth not just found in Exodus, not just found in the Old Testament, it's found throughout the Bible. And you cannot, if you're serious about knowing who God is, you cannot know God. You can't understand the scriptures. You can't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ if you don't understand that God gets angry at sin. You can't understand anything that God's going to teach you in the Bible, anything Jesus has to say in the scriptures, if you don't understand that God gets angry at sin. But for the most part, for the most part, this is a topic we largely avoid today. It's a topic we don't like to talk about very often. And honestly, probably a topic that we don't want to deal with. We don't want to deal with the reality that God gets angry at sin. Even as I say phrases like that, angry at sin, I wonder if you find yourself recoiling a little bit. I wonder if you find yourself kind of checking out a little bit because you don't really want to deal with it. Now, there are a lot of reasons for that. You, you may have seen people use this reality and shame people and oppress people and harm people. Or, or maybe you, you, you know what's there in the Bible, but you just want to speed past it to the parts that you really like. Or maybe, just maybe, deep down in your heart of hearts, you really believe this idea that God gets angry at sin and God's wrath towards sin is an archaic, old-school theology that Christians don't really have to believe anymore. And I don't know where you fall in all of that, 
But you have to know, if you want to know the God who made everything, if you want to know the God who is love, then you have to understand why he gets angry at our sin. And the truth is, if we're being completely honest, you and I understand in our own lives that anger can sometimes be a right and good and necessary response. In our own lives, in this broken world, you and I know that anger can be a right response. This past week, I took our downtown AM staff team to go see this movie called uh, The Birth of a Nation. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a story of Nat Turner, who was a slave and a preacher, and he led a small uh, slavery uh, revolt against um, their masters in 1831. And when you watch this movie, when you watch this movie, you're, you're confronted with the absolute horrors of racism, the absolute devastating reality of oppression that was happening in our country. And you watch it and you get a, just a, it's a depiction, it's not reality, it's a depiction of the evil that black men, women, and children were put through. And, and I'm watching this movie and I'm watching men who look just like me do unspeakable things, justify unspeakable things, use the Bible to justify unspeakable things. And they look just like me. And so the whole time, all I'm feeling is intense sadness swing over to intense anger. I'm sad at the oppression and I want justice. I feel angry. I want there to be freedom for these people. I want justice to fall down on these evildoers. I mean, I feel all these things. Now here's the point. You may not have seen that movie yet, but you've seen ones like it. You've seen 12 Years a Slave, maybe, Schindler's List. Movies like this that make you look at a great evil. Make you sit in it for two hours. Just sit in the reality that this evil occurred and it's real. And here's the thing. You should feel anger and sadness. You should. It's a very good thing when you see such things to feel sadness and to feel anger and to feel anger. And the reason you should feel that is because when you watch things like this, you know, here's what's happening. Human dignity and human worth is being trampled on. It's being disregarded. And anytime what is good and lovely is being treated as wrong and worthless, anger begins to stir in us to protect what is good and lovely. See, human beings can use anger for all sorts of terrible things, but in its purest form, anger is protecting what's good. Anger is protecting what is lovely. That's what it is in its purest form. So when God gets angry, we can't thumb our nose at him and say, how could you ever get angry? We know in our own lives there are certain evils that must force us to get angry to protect the good. And so when God gets angry at our sin, you can't dismiss it. You can't move past it. You need to sit in it. You need to sit in it. If you're really going to know him, you got to sit in it. you got to see Okay, what is it about my sin that makes him so angry? And here's why. Because then you can see how extravagant his mercy is. Hear me really clearly. You want to know just how incredible his mercy is, you have to understand how angry he gets to contrast with how great his mercy is. So look at Exodus 32, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read it together. We start this narrative, this story of them worshiping the golden calf. Exodus 32, verse 1. This is the word of God. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So Moses is on the mountain for 40 days. 40 days, he's, he's, he's meeting with God. And as soon as it seems like he's been delayed for any period of time, the people immediately go towards idolatry. They immediately begin to disobey God. It's as if they were just waiting for the opportunity because he's delayed and their first response is not, oh, I'm sad that Moses is gone. The first response is not, hey, search party, let's go figure out where he is. First response is, great, let's make a God for ourselves. It's like they were just waiting for the opportunity. They want a God who they can see. They want a God they can see. This other God seems delayed. So they call Aaron, one of the leaders, hey, get some gold, make, make something for us. He goes, okay, great, give me your gold, I'll make a calf. They begin to worship it. They even call it the calf Yahweh. It's a personal name that God gave to his people back all the way back in Exodus 3. Anytime you see the word Lord in all caps italicized, it's God's personal name of Yahweh he gave to his people. And they say, we're going to worship Yahweh today. They even get up early, make sacrifices, and they worship this calf. Now, because of the expansive cultural and time differences between Israel then and us now, it's very easy for us to see their dysfunction and their sin. It's very easy to see, wow, they made a mistake. And it even feels silly to us because we could not imagine doing what they're doing. We could not imagine doing what they're doing. But listen, it's not ludicrous to us, this is what they're doing. It's not ludicrous because we are morally superior to them. It's just because our culture and our time is so different. But especially with the golden calf, you and I cannot relate to that at all. I mean, I doubt any of you, I doubt any of you have been in a season where God felt distant. He felt far away. You didn't know where he was. And you find yourself having a temptation to say, hey, how attached are you to those earrings? Like, do you really need them? I'm thinking, I'm thinking I'm building a calf tonight. Like, I, I, I doubt any of you thought, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. So we can't relate to that at all. But you have to know for that time and that place, completely normal. A non-Israelite who walked up and saw them building a calf out of gold, they would think, yeah, that makes sense. Because they had done the same thing for their religious beliefs and their gods. It wasn't abnormal to them at all. And here's what I want you to see about sin and the nature of sin. It's not always obvious. Sin and the nature of sin is deceptive. It's not always obvious. So the golden calf for that time period would not have been bizarre. And if you look at the way they were acting that day, if we just watched the way they were acting, you and I wouldn't think it was bizarre either. Look at verse 5 and 6. It says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So if you didn't, had no idea that they were worshiping a golden calf, you would think they're doing pretty good. I mean, look at it, right vocabulary. They use the term Yahweh. So like us going, hey, I'm gonna go worship Jesus today. Sounds pretty good. 
They woke up early. They, they weren't lazy. They, they weren't undisciplined. They woke up early. They made right sacrifice. They were doing the right practices. They were eating together. They were having fellowship together. It says they rose up to play. They were having fun. They were laughing. When you look at this situation just by the circumstances, you and I would probably think they're good with God. Just with our own lens and our own eyes, you think they seem like they're trying to worship God faithfully. But if you look at this scenario with God's word and God's, God's commands in mind, then you see just how egregious this whole thing is. So here's the point you have to understand about sin. You can only recognize sin with the word of God, not your word. You can't judge if something is sin by your word or your perception or your feelings or your circumstances. You have to assess it by the word of God. Without God's word, the situation I just read is a group of people trying their best to pursue God and we respect them for that. If you view what they're doing through the lens of God's commands, they are totally rejecting God. They heard his word, I don't want that, I wanna have fun. I wanna do what seems right to everybody around me. And all of us want to assume that we will know if and when we're sinning. All of us want to assume that, oh, I would know that. We want to assume that, oh, my sin will be clear to see. I'll know when God is displeased with me. One of the ways we do this is we think, if I'm happy, if I'm healthy, and the people around me feel loved and supported, how could God disapprove of me? How often do we think, well, if God wanted me to know I was in sin, wouldn't you sin like a lightning strike or something? Wouldn't he let me know? I mean, doing what I'm doing right now, it makes me happy. How could God hate what makes me happy? How could he? I thought he loved me. How could he hate what makes me smile? We assess things by saying, am I having fun? Do I feel supported? Am I happy? Ergo, God must be pleased. But what this story is showing us, you cannot assess a situation by your emotional state or by your circumstances to know whether or not if God is pleased with what you're doing. You have to go to the word of God and assess your situation and your heart and your thinking and your feeling and your acting by his word to know, am I offending him or not? That's the only way you can assess if you're actually following Jesus or not is by his word, not by your perception. And when God sees your sin, when he sees your sin, sees my sin, he gets rightfully angry. Look, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Look at God's response to the, them worshiping the calf. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of, up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God sees his people disobeying his word, rejecting him, and he gets angry. Not just a little frustrated, not just a little annoyed, not just, oh, I wish you were different, but that's okay. No, it causes such deep anger in God that at the, at the good they are suppressing that he wants to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's what he feels. 
That's his response. This God who had loved them and brought them up out of the land of Egypt is tired of being treated as common and as worthless. He's tired of it. And the reason God is getting angry, once again, why? He's protecting something. He's protecting what he loves. He's protecting the greatest good. And the greatest good is the worth of his name and character and reputation. He loved his people. He saved his people. But they are treating him like he's not satisfying, like he's not mighty, like he's not the almighty God who created the heavens and the earth. They're treating him like they would treat any other person they've ever met. They're disregarding his word. So he gets angry because they're contradicting the most life-giving realities that God actually is who he says he is. And when you see God's judgment and you see his wrath, to us, if we're honest, it can seem like an overreaction. God God getting this angry, okay, I'm going to destroy them, can feel to us like an overreaction. But that's only because you and I have been so corrupted by sin. It's only because you and I have been so corrupted by sin. You and I have only known life in the confines of a broken world, in the confines of broken desires. Like even as Christians in this room, God saved you and you're at your very worst, but now what is God teaching you to be like, to be more like him and less like you? Christian, the rest of your life is becoming more like Jesus and less like you. On our own, we cannot see or understand just how awful sin is just how dysfunctional it is. So we can't see sin the way God sees it, so we struggle to understand his response. So when it comes to sin, think about it this way. When it comes to the concept and the nature of sin, you and I are like an addict. We're like an addict. We're so overcome by our desires and our dysfunction that what seems normal to us, what seems normal to us is completely dysfunctional and leads to death. And leads to death. Like an addict, we've become so warped that we think things that are totally abnormal, everybody does. Like someone who's an addict with alcohol, they convince themselves drinking at Monday morning at 10 a.m. is normal. But if you're not an addict, you can see it really clearly. If you're not an addict, you can see, hey, that behavior, that rhythm in your life is going to kill you eventually. You're killing yourself right now. You're you're killing everyone around you right now, and you can't even see it. God is the only sober one among us. He's the only one who sees clearly. He's the only one not stained by sin. He's the only one who can see things for what they really are. And so we're so easily convinced that, well, the way I handle Sundays and the way I handle sex and the way I handle money and the way I handle life, of course, I mean, everyone else is doing basically the same thing. I'm probably not that bad. We look at ourselves and our emotional state and our circumstances and we kind of go, I may not be perfect, but I'm not that bad. And God, the only non-addict among us, the only righteous one among us, tells us you don't know how normal rebellion has become for you. It's just normal for you to do things that destroy yourself and defame God's name. That's why when God talks to us about our sin, he uses very vivid and visceral metaphors. He gives us metaphors to say, no, let me explain to you how I experience your sin. Not how you experience your sin, how I experience your sin. One of the most common images that God gives to us as a metaphor is adultery, especially in the prophets in the Old Testament. He says, when you sin, 
it's not as if how you would feel if you made a rule and somebody broke that rule. Right? Like, let's say you make a rule, you want your kids to obey, your friends to follow through, and they don't do it. The way that makes you feel, God says, that's not how I feel. That's not how I experience your sin against me. He says, no, 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 here's how I experience it. He says, imagine the spouse you love with all of your heart. Imagine the spouse you have given yourself to in ways that no one else gets. And he says, I experience your sin like you coming home and opening the door and you seeing this spouse you've given your whole life to cheating on you. You walk in and you see them giving themselves away in every way you've only wanted for yourself. He says, that's how I experience your sin. This one that I loved, you chose other lovers and you flaunted your adultery. Not only did you cheat, you flaunted it. Anyone who was willing, you gave yourself away. Anyone with no remorse, no shame, and no intent on stopping. He says, that's how I experience your sin. That's what it feels like for me. He says, I don't, I'm not feeling like just a lawgiver whose rules weren't obeyed. I feel it like a betrayed husband. That's how I experience your sin. And would any of us look at a human being who was cheated on repeatedly and begrudged them for getting angry? Of course not. Of course not. This is exactly what it does for God. That's why he gets rightfully angry at our sin because he experiences it as if you were cheating on him. All the worship that he made for himself you're giving away. And that, listen, that's the most terrifying reality about sin. Listen, there are all sorts of consequences in this life that sin will bring to you. Sin will bring damage to relationships over time and happiness and peace and contentment and it will have damaging effects in this, in this, in this life. But that's not the most terrifying reality about sin. The most awful reality about sin is it makes God your enemy. The thing that makes, should make us tremble is not if I sin, I'm going to get in trouble with my friends. Well, this church will find out who cares about that. If we are stuck in sin and not trusting in Christ, the most terrifying reality is that God is angry and he's against us. That's the most terrifying reality. And if in this story, if this story ended with God destroying Israel and starting over with Moses, he would have been right and good to do so. He would have shown everyone, you and me included, he would have shown everybody, you do not trample on the best treasure in the universe, my name. You don't treat me with anything other than reverence and respect. If that's how this story ended, he would have been good and right to do so. But here's the thing about our God. He wants to show off his incredible mercy. He wants his people to feel and see, though I experience your sin as if I'm being cheated on, I just want to be merciful to you. I want to show off my mercy. Look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. God gets angry, this is what happens. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people? 
whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Moses comes to God and says, be merciful. Have mercy on us. I know they deserve death. I know that. Be merciful. And at first glance, what seems to be happening here is that God is angry, he's out of control, and he's this human to come calm him down and talk him off the ledge and remind him of promises that he made. But actually what's happening in this scene, what's happening in this scene is Moses' plea for mercy to God is showing off God's mercy, not Moses's. Hear me. It's showing off God's mercy, not Moses' mercy. Think about it for a second. How did Moses get to this place? Like he's, he's pleading with God. He's his intercessor. But what happened in his life to get him there? Remember, 40 years before this, Moses is by himself having murdered a man not very merciful, no relationship with God, no future, no hope, and God sought him out in the wilderness and called him to lead. God trained him, God taught him, God empowered him, God used him, and then God prepared him and appointed him to the role of intercessor for his people. Why? God knew this moment was coming. He knew. He knew his people were full of sin. He knew that. He knew they needed his mercy. And so all the while, while his people have been walking through the Red Sea, all the while, while they've been learning small things about him, he knows I'm developing this intercessor who's going to cry out for mercy and I'm going to hear him and be merciful. God had been preparing Moses for this moment to be this intercessor who prompts the mercy of God. And the reason God wanted this intercessor in Moses is not just simply for Israel's sake. The thing that's beautiful about the Old Testament is what you see, these little glimpses, these little foreshadowing of what God's up to actually. That ultimately, this is not a story about Moses being an intercessor. It's a story about Jesus being our intercessor. Moses is a foreshadowing of the ultimate intercessor between God and men, Jesus Christ. And Jesus would go to links to save us, to have mercy on us, to prompt God's mercy on you and me for our sin in ways Moses never could. See, later on in the story, Moses, it's incredible. He tells God, I'm willing to be blotted out for the sake of Israel. Don't turn there. Verse 31. It says, so Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. It's incredible. Moses is willing to be blotted out for them. He's willing. But Jesus comes in. Not only is he willing, but he actually is blotted out for our namesake, for, for God's namesake and for our benefit. Look at Matthew 27. It says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Jesus went to the cross 
and he experienced all the wrath and anger of God fell on him. He was forsaken. Not just in his willingness, but he actually was. Moses tells Israel, hey, I'm going to go plead for mercy, but honestly, I can't guarantee anything. Look at verse 30. The next day, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I go up to the Lord, perhaps, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Moses loves them. He wants to save them, but he knows there's nothing I can say other than beg. I have no confidence. I don't know. Perhaps I can make atonement. But Jesus Christ stands before God and says, I guarantee the answer will always be you are forgiven. John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. It's finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus stands before God, and you can have an absolute certainty that every time God looks at you, there is mercy and not anger. It is finished. See, the reason God sent Jesus was not because he wasn't angry at your sin or mine. He sent Jesus precisely because he was angry, but he wanted to show you his mercy. He wanted you to see just how gracious he can be. And our sin is so awful and so serious that only the death of Jesus Christ can actually take care of it and get rid of God's anger once and for all towards his people who trust in his son. And that's why for those of you who have trusted, if you're here and you're okay, I have trusted in that death. I know God was angry, but now Jesus took my place for me. If you're a Christian in this room, you have to take fighting your sin serious. You have got to take and make one of your ambitions in life to fight against your sin. Christian, do not confuse God's grace for your sin as God not caring if you sin. That's a really important thing that you understand, Christian. Do not confuse God's grace and mercy towards your sin as him not caring if you sin. It's quite the opposite. God was merciful and gracious to you so that you could see your sin more clearly and now by his power fight against it. If you're here and you're a Christian, here's a way to judge if you're growing in Christ, if you're becoming more and more mature, is that you're more aware of your sin. You're more aware of it. Even sins that they may look smaller to everybody else, you're more aware of it. And when you're more aware of it, you're more heartbroken over the offense it is to God. And it's not a maturity as you see your sin more clearly and you're more heartbroken over your sin that you're more quick to confess your sin to God and to other people. If you don't have stories of confessing God, confessing your sin to God or to other people, I don't know that you're growing right now. And as you grow in maturity in Christ, you're more willing to give up whatever you have to, even sometimes good things. Even good things that everyone else around you gets to enjoy, but you know all this does is lead me to sin. And I've seen God's grace for my sin, but I hate it. I want to go against it. Christian, if you're in here, you've got to take fighting your sin more serious. Do not confuse his grace for your sin as him not caring if you sin. And as you grow in your understanding of your sinfulness and your neediness and just how much you need God's grace, you have to remind yourself, too, that your assurance that you've been forgiven, that God is merciful to you, is rooted in the intercessor, not you. It's rooted in Jesus, not in you. You are not forgiven, and God is not merciful because you feel really bad about your sin. 
He's not, you don't get mercy because you paid penance. And you walked around sad for two and a half weeks to show just how sorry you were. His mercy is not rooted in you or in me. It's rooted in his character and in the intercessor's pleas for you. When Moses went to God, he didn't say, but they're fine, they're not that bad, they're not that sinful. sinful." He didn't say that, he knew that wasn't true. He just said, remember your promises, remember your mercy, and Jesus says, remember my blood for them. Some of you in here beat yourself up relentlessly anytime you sin, you are not honoring God's mercy when you do that. It's the most incredible thing about God is that you can come to him with whatever sin you have and you can know because Jesus is there, I get forgiven. Some of you keep delaying going to God because you're scared of what he will say. And I'm telling you, the answer because of Jesus is I will forgive you. I will have mercy. Repent of it, trust in Jesus, and I will have mercy. See, it's in Jesus you see just how angry God gets at sin and that he had to pour out his sin at the cross, pour out his wrath at the cross. And you see just how merciful he is in saying, and he took your place, so now you get my pleasure, my love, my mercy because of him. So we trust him, Christian, for mercy, and we trust him to fight against our sin. I'll close with this verse written by the Apostle John. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Let's pray together. Father, I want you to make me and make us a sobered people. God, even now, will you show us areas where we are taking sin lightly? God, where we're assessing God, your pleasure over our lives and how we're living based on our circumstances, based on if we're happy or not, and not based on your word. God, help us take sin serious because, God, you dealt with it at the cross. And there's grace for us and there's mercy for us, but God, help us follow you faithfully and not make peace with it. God, help us be a people who are known for our distinctness. In this city, we're known as people who judge our lives by your word. And a people who know that I can keep coming back to this God, I can keep asking for forgiveness, and he'll never run out of mercy. Because of his character, because of the promises he made in Jesus. And Jesus said, it is finished. And for those of us who've been running from you for a long time, And we keep thinking, I gotta get this part of my life together before I come back. God, would you rid us of that notion that there's any way to be right before you other than just running to Jesus and saying, forgive me, have mercy on me. God, make us a people who understand your holiness, understand your mercy, and live our lives in light of it. That God, we would see your holiness is displayed both in your anger and in your mercy. God, help us show this city just how merciful you can be, how expansive your grace is. God, we ask these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, church. Let's stand. Let's sing together.